Hello and welcome to another episode of Hashtag Senva Podcast. I am Shrestha, Regional Program Coordinator for Asia and Oceania at After IGM and your guest host for this episode. Lately, biotechnology and business have been making a lot of buzz. From making in vitro meat to engineering fossil fuel-free alternatives, the developing bioeconomy is surely here to stay. Catherine Hamilton, our guest today, uncomplicates these complex issues into thought-provoking bite-sized articles. She believes biotechnology is humanity's highest art form, advocates for nuanced solutions for the food and health sector, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Catherine is the managing editor and senior staff writer at bioeconomy.xyz and one of the warmest people I have met. I talked to her in this episode about her truly transdisciplinary academic background, her journey into science communication, and the future of bioeconomy. Let's dive right into this episode, starting with how Catherine developed her passion for biochemistry and how learning about healthcare implementation in a developing nation such as Nepal led her on a career path she never imagined. You know, starting with undergrad, my, my passion for biochemistry is, is sort of grounded in research experience. So graduating from Kelvin College, which is now Kelvin University, um, while I was there, I was able to contribute to research in Dr. Larry Lauder's lab. Um, and we frequently collaborated with Dr. Dr. Loinga and, and Dr. Arnois. And um, we, we spent time researching the glucose transporter protein GLUT1, which is um, an essential transporter protein in the cells that make up your nervous system and, and in your red blood cells as well. We're sort of looking at it as a future therapeutic target for debilitating diseases like cancer and diabetes. And it was really learning about biochemistry in a research context, asking questions for which, you know, an answer didn't exist. And then through thoughtful experiment design, uh, sort of intellectually stepping into the unknown and, and looking and finding an answer, sort of contributing in a research environment was really transformational for my passion for biochemistry and the scientific method as a whole. So I owe a lot of where I am now to Dr. Lauders, Loinga, uh, and Arnois. I, I know that most people, when they think of biochemistry and business, it's, it's a unique combination. And, you know, normally I think when people think of a biochemistry undergraduate degree, they see it as a stepping stone for either medical school, you know, some people choose to go to veterinary school um, or pursuing your PhD. And if you would have asked me during undergrad what I was interested in doing with my degree, I was often, I've often found that I was vacillating between going the MD or, or the PhD path. But then during that undergrad uh, time, I spent a month in Nepal, which is a nation that I just have a profound appreciation for. And we were learning about healthcare implementation, uh, you know, in a developing nation. It was on that trip that I sort of recognized these two things. First, access to care was exclusively dependent on these extraordinary individuals, these physicians and, and nurses, um, phlebotomists, who were able to, to come to this country or were trained, uh, were native Nepalis. It was like, it was dependent on them being present, right? So if, if something were to happen and these particular healthcare providers couldn't do their job, there weren't really systems in place to sustain their work, which sort of made me really critically consider like different levels of impact that you can have and the sustainability of, of different interventions, you know, specifically within that context, but then sort of applying that thought to, to other areas or, or, you know, to the research environment, et cetera. And then sort of the, the second thing that I recognized was sort of that incalculable potential for impact at the intersection of things that are normally juxtaposed. And so when I was trying to articulate what was going to come next after undergrad, I was sort of looking for a way to contribute to science in a meaningful way, 
just maybe at a different level than I originally was planning on, and then trying to build a career at the intersection of things that were juxtaposed. And so doing a, a master's of science in business is, is a unique degree, but it was sort of the way that it was pitched to me and the pitch worked because I obviously went into the program was it was, it was a way to build a business lens for my undergraduate degree. And it was sort of this acknowledgement that at the end of the day, everything is a business. Nonprofits are businesses, schools are businesses. And a lot of the decisions about the direction of an organization are made and, you know, long-term strategy is sort of defined on the business end of an organization because mm-hmm. things have to, to function well. And, you know, a business has to, an organization has to, you know, be able to maintain its operations and through funding. And so, um, you know, I wanted to be able to contribute to, to the business side of whatever organization, whatever path that I ended up choosing. Uh, Cause you know, I, I wanted to be in, in the room deciding, you know, the long-term strategy of an organization. And then science and business sort of seemed like an interesting uh, intersection of, of things that normally people don't consider as intersecting. I thought that would be a unique intersection for for impact. And now I ask Catherine about the journey that led her to Bioeconomy.xyz. Bioeconomy XYZ is a medium-based publication founded by Dr. Alexander Titus, um, who I now have the privilege of calling my mentor. And I connected with him through LinkedIn, actually. And I read something that he had written. It was an article and it was titled, the 2020s are going to be the decade of the bioeconomy. And sort of reading that as as about halfway through the second semester of my my master's program, I was like, wow, this is such an insightful piece. And it's sort of like the exact articulation of the work that I wanted to contribute to upon graduation. And so I I reached out to him. You know, it took me some time to get him on the phone because he's in the middle of transitioning Um, to a new job. But I think that ended up being so important because in in the time that it took for us to coordinate getting on that phone and and sort of having that that initial interaction, I read everything that he had taken the time to write about. And I admired his original piece, but then after reading everything that he had written, I sort of just had this deep admiration for his worldview and just the way that he, he looked at the intersection of, of science with society. And so when we were able to, to speak on the phone, I asked him very hard hitting questions like, what are future generations going to have to go through and, and grapple with? Because, you know, their DNA, um, you know, through various different means is, is going to be co-opted very early on through, you know, consumer-based products, through you know, cyber attacks and and things like that, like their DNA is going to be co-opted. And that's like sort of like the deepest form of, of identity theft. And so what is like the, the implications of, of that level and then that deep, you know, identity theft before, you know, most people even understand the the true implications of that. And I ask some questions like, how do you manage to coordinate, you know, professional development with high impact positions. And we just had like this very dynamic conversation. And then from there, he invited me to, to write an article for Bioeconomy XYZ if I was interested. And then I wrote articles for about six months. And then he asked me if I want to, contrib- to contribute more formally. And so now I've been the managing editor for about the past 10 months. And that's been definitely just the, the most amazing experience. And, and I absolutely love what I get to do with Bioeconomy XYZ. Catherine mentioned she is a student of the scientific method, and I was interested in learning more about how her previous scientific training has helped her beyond the traditional realms of research and academia. My worldview is just completely different as a result of being a student of the scientific method. And, you know, like, what does that mean? I think 
fundamentally, we rarely define things in science, right? There are very, there are so few definitions in anything that you learn across fields, right? And so everything is a theory. And, and why is everything a theory? Because it's, it's right until we prove it wrong and then it shifts. And so then we have to adapt our understanding. And, and so, I mean, even the whole principle behind scientific publications, right? You, you do a set of experiments, you discover something new, and then you formalize it into a publication. It's shared with the scientific community where then other scientists try to prove you wrong, right? And, and then once, and if no one can prove you wrong, then, you know, an, an article can move forward with publication and, you know, and, and still it's, it's right until it's proven wrong. And so sort of approaching the rest of my life with, with that worldview of deep understanding of the world is, is dynamic and trying to always be focused on, on learning new things and, you know, not really focusing on anything being set in stone or, or anything as an absolute. I think it allows you to be a student constantly, right? And, and to uh, and bring that analytical thinking that is critical in, in a lab environment to everything else. I think that would be, you know, for me personally, the, the biggest way is my worldview is just is different. I, I, I like mm-hmm. asking questions and, and I like, you know, sort of evaluating ideas based on their merits, but it's, it's that cycle of, of learning and, and taking things as a fact and until proven otherwise, I think um, is something that people who study the scientific method um, really benefit from in the formation of the rest of their worldview. We at iGEM Podcast believe that science is incomplete without communication. I now ask Catherine about how the creation of local science ecosystems can help establish greater trust between science and society. Yeah, you know, I think uh, Sarah Mento, who is a director of innovation and business strategy at AstraZeneca, and I, she and I just collaborated on a piece for Bioeconomy XYZ focused on this. You know, the status quo of science right now and then the way that it's conducted is okay, but what would it take to bring it from, from good to great? What does that optimal collaboration, like a truly symbiotic relationship between these entities that, you know, maintain such unique intellectual capital and contribute such meaningful work to this space? And so we sort of came up with this model that I would love to, you know, take from an article, take from the drawing board and actually try to implement it. But it's sort of focused on, you know, we have these biotech hubs, which create and uh, you know, such amazing technology and do such incredible work. Boston is obviously one that everyone thinks of uh, because of the work mm-hmm. that they do. But, you know, how do we sort of, you know, the United States, for example, is, you know, such a, a large country and, and, you know, there's so much that exists in between the coasts, right? Because we normally think of West Coast hubs of innovation and we think of East Coast hubs of innovation. But what are we doing to sort of bring the science out of these hubs and, and bring them to the rest of, of the United States? And then by extension, you know, that same worldview applies to the rest of the world. So for us, we were sort of looking at what's what's the status quo right now and, and what are we missing? And for us, we sort of said, what if we created these ecosystems within local communities focused on improving, you know, science literacy and improving just, you know, the general public understanding and, and trust of, of what it is that science is and what it seeks to accomplish. And we found that, you know, one thing that we thought was missing from, from current initiatives was this integration of everyone being at the same physical location at the same time. Oftentimes, you know, like the government and, and private industry will collaborate and, or, you know, academia and, and private industry will collaborate, but rarely are all of these stakeholder groups in the same room for an extended period of time solving a problem that is as ambiguous and, and so has just, you know, is so nuanced as 
as in improving science literacy. And so um, we sort of said, you know, what if we sort of took all of these stakeholder groups and put them physically in communities that aren't normally traditional hubs of innovation? And, you know, we we said, and we sort of centralized the model around having artists in residence, right? So artists are some of the best communicators that exist on, mm-hmm. on the planet, I would say. And so, you know, taking artists who have deep ties to a, to a community and, and sort of allowing them to facilitate this physical collaboration center where government is present, regulatory agencies, where, you know, clinical trial sites are able to be present within communities, improving access to, to cutting edge medicine and, and, you know, sort of also giving people an insight into what the, the, the drug development and the clinical trial process and the regulatory process even looks like, uh, because, you know, it's one thing to read about it. It's another thing to experience it. And so just what, what does it look like when we, when we bring science out of the hubs, out of the lab, put it into a community and, and sort of upset the, the traditional education model as well. And, and, you know, just what, what's the potential for increasing the speed of, of innovation and, and increasing how quickly we're able to arrive at new discoveries, because we've just brought so many different people with distinctive and unique worldviews into the conversation and in, and to participate in the scientific process at its various stages. Right. Um, and so I think that was a really interesting exercise for us to sort of say, from her experience working at um, a pharmaceutical company, which does, you know, fantastic work and, and my experience, which is, you know, completely different than hers. What in an ideal world would we like to create? And I think, you know, the one thing that is really important is it's, it's hard to trust an unknown entity that gets mixed media coverage, you know, in, in moments mm-hmm. of crisis. I think it's a lot easier to, to establish trust with someone who, you know, you, you grew up with or someone who shops at the same mm-hmm. grocery store as you. Or to say, you know, listen, I've, I've been building a relationship with, with this scientist or this, this group of scientists for, for five, 10 years because they're invested in my local, my local community. And so then when we have like moments of crisis that I think we've seen with the COVID-19 pandemic, then it's not that rush to build trust because the trust has always been there. And understanding that the scientific method is, is fallible, right? Like it's, it's, it's not perfect and, it, and it's focused on discovery and then, you know, having an insight, but then that insight is, you know, can quickly be proven wrong. Going back to that whole idea of a theory and things rarely being defined, it's, it's sort of creating local ecosystems where science is thriving within communities that we don't appear to some to be, you know, non-traditional. Um, th- that's where trust starts. That's where science communication starts, right? You know, tangible progress is going to be made at a grassroots level. And it's, it's those moments of collaboration that, that move from hesitant acceptance where, you know, new technology is being developed and, and people are, okay, accepting of it, but it's sort of, they're hesitant in, in that process. And it's sort of, the technology is here, so I might as well accept it because it's, it's going to impact my life as opposed to sort of greeting new innovation with excitement and saying, you know, let's have a conversation or around what implementation in our community looks like. We, you know, we just, we have an opportunity to completely change what science looks like and how science interacts with society. And I think now looking at the COVID-19 pandemic, learning, looking at the flourishing bioeconomy, you know, how do we, that, like, this is a, this is an opportunity that I think we'll only get once to sort of change it and invite more people into the conversation and make it truly inclusive, regardless of what your background is. And so 
we, we move from hesitant acceptance to the sort of excitement and, and early adoption and, and that sort of thing. And just how many problems are we could solve if we, if we sort of focused on doing our due diligence and, and building trust in advance of technology uh, being developed. I now ask Catherine about how science communication has evolved in the backdrop of biotech innovation. We've reached this inflection point where scientists who are, are brilliant and, and are sort of leading this way towards this development of, with technology are sort of saying, wait a minute, what if, what if I tried to communicate with, with someone who you know, doesn't have a PhD in the same thing that I do, right? Or, or someone who, who is deeply familiar with, with the subject matter expertise that I hold. Um, scientists are sort of like dipping their toe into what it means to, to communicate with people who have very different educational backgrounds than them. And it's, and it's exciting. And I think we need to capitalize on it because there's, there's an opportunity to sort of build trust in advance. And I think I think language is, is really important as we sort of see this, you know, scientists stepping out of maybe what their comfort zone would be and, and trying to communicate their expertise and, and, the te- and communicate about the technology that they're developing where, you know, c- certain language that works within, you know, in a very analytical environment, like, like the lab, right, where it's, it's all focused on results and adherence to and experimental design and and things like that. Like the language that you use in such an analytical um, environment is very different than the language that we should be using to communicate about science with people with um, very different educational backgrounds, right? And so one of the themes that we have at Bioeconomics by Z that I appreciate the most is biotechnology as humanity's highest art form, right? And I think this is language that, I mean, obviously I'm biased because it's it's one of our themes, but sort of this this language of, of deep collaboration with nature right? Because I think oftentimes um, history shows that we've sort of had just this tumultuous relationship with nature, right? It's sort of been about mastering nature or, or taking things from nature so that we can, we can benefit or, you know, it's, it's one must increase and, you know, so we can increase nature must decrease, right? And it's sort of this toll that we've seen on on the environment Um, and just sort of, it's a strained relationship. And I think the, the emerging bioeconomy has an opportunity to just change the script and it's deep collaboration with nature as we, we learn more about nature and more about us by extension, human beings by extension, we, we have this very unique and profound opportunity to say, are we going to, to sort of use nature or are we going to collaborate deeply with just the ingenuity that we see within it? And so this is when we, when we choose the language of biotechnology being humanity's highest art form, art is something that has been deeply integral to humanity's experience from, from you know, the earliest moments of, of humanity. And so we say, listen, this is an opportunity for us to collaborate and then create, bring our creativity to the creativity of nature and sort of have like the symbiotic relationship. I, I think that resonates with people regardless of their level of understanding of, you know, like the, the deep technical science, it's sort of saying, oh, well, we have an opportunity to, to work alongside nature, to collaborate with nature and to create new beyond what currently exists in nature. I think that's just such an interesting starting point for any conversation, right? Is to say, this is the goal is deep collaboration built on deep respect and understanding of nature and, uh, you know, a desire to make the world a better place. And so how can we do that within a scientific context? I think that's, really exciting and so I think as biotech really is 
in our opinion, humanity's highest art form. It's the deepest form of collaboration that is possible in an artistic sense with nature. The opportunity that this presents to sort of flip the script on science communications and say, listen, this is, I'm a scientist and, and I choose to dedicate my life to scientific discovery with the end result of collaborating with nature. I just think like that it just, it's such a novel way of, of talking about what it is that we do. And then from there, adding different layers of details based on, you know, who you're speaking to. But um, I think, you know, science communications is sort of at, at this inflection point where we have an opportunity to just make it, you know, a completely inclusive conversation. And, and that starts with scientists who, you know, it, it might be completely out of their comfort zone, but just taking that first step in, in, in the trust building process and saying, listen, this is what I do. And, and this is why I love what I do. And, and I want to, I want to teach you about the, the implications that are possible at the end, you know, sort of at the end, the light at the end of the tunnel of, of the scientific method and, and learning new things about the way that the world works. Given that Catherine has been working at the intersection of biotech and business, I now ask her about the current and future state of the bioeconomy and what are some of the new career paths emerging for early stage researchers. I'm so hopeful about the future state of the bioeconomy and biotechnology. Like I just, I'm so excited about the potential for change and the potential for, from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep, um, there's this potential for, for biotechnology to be involved in every single element of our lives, right? I think that is such an exciting reality that is very sure. quickly approaching. I also yeah. think that, you know, right now we're sort of seeing the first step in, in this process, but normally I would say things are still very siloed in what we do. And, and I think that's a function of to achieve expertise in one thing, like the world is there's so much detail and there's so just to like achieve and, and fully understand one element mm-hmm. of, of the world. You know, we sort of have created these, these silos within science, within different disciplines. Um, and so I think right now still there is sort of these distinctive silos between science and business. And so I think, you know, the greatest uh, potential for career paths for young researchers is sort of um, positions that blur the lines between those two silos, right? That are you know, 50% business and 50% science. And, and so things that sit, sit at that intersection and, and, and really just blur the lines between those two silos, I think those are going to be really exciting um, positions that young researchers should be, should be looking out for. I also think that, of course, given, you know, the couple of questions that we talked about before, science communications is going to be absolutely essential. Um, mm-hmm. Just even, even for people who you know, want to, to do bench work for the rest of their lives, um, which I, I think being able to have a conversation with someone that you go to the same dog park as, right? Or someone who's at the grocery store looking at, you know, impossible burgers or, you know, something like that, being able to just talk with someone in an, an excited way about the potential integration of, of science and biotechnology into, into people's lives, I think is going to be so essential. And I think also on top of that, um, the one thing that we always need to consider is sort of like the ethical ramifications of what it is that we're doing. I think that oftentimes scientists and rightly so think about, you know, the the positive implications of the technology that's being developed. And we sort of, we, we focus all of our energy on the the good that a technology can do. And I, and I think we do have to consider, you know, the negative implications, right? If it's going back to that, 
you know, the foundation of a scientific, of the scientific method and a scientific worldview is this technology has the potential to, to do a lot of good, but it could also do harm. And are we aware of the potential that something has to do harm, even though it is bringing about good or the potential that a technology that is intrinsically bringing about, you know, transformational change, the potential that it has to, to do harm in the hands of bad actors, right? And so I think we have to be aware of that. And I think we have to be aware of our history that sometimes um, science has been used to, to, do, to do damage or to do harm to, to marginalized groups of people. And so I think, you know, ethics, I think that, you know, young researchers should be aware of, of ethics and, and, and jobs that are focused exclusively on the ethics of the technology that is being established and, you know, the short-term good that it has the potential to accomplish, but also what are the, the long-term good and bad that technology has the potential to do as well. And I think starting off with that and, and starting with those considerations isn't, you know, it isn't demonizing a technology from, from its onset, right? It's, it's the careful consideration of the implications of what we're doing. And, and that's going to go a, a long way to establishing trust as well as saying, listen, we're considering the long-term, the short-term and the long-term ethical implications of something from the moment when the idea is conceived, right? I think, I think we have to do our due diligence given, given the nature of the work that, that we're we're doing and then and the nature of innovations that that are coming to market and for my final question i asked catherine to describe in three words how she feels about the future i think the future will be inclusive um, i feel confident about our future and i and i feel really hopeful about our future and the potential that we have to make the world a better place Given how amazing our ongoing discussion was, I sneaked in a bonus question and asked Catherine what her advice would be to students who aren't too sure about what they want to do in the future or if they have taken an unconventional career path and are worried they won't be able to get back on track. You know, first and, and foremost, I think I would just encourage everyone to lean into the unique composition of their individual worldviews. So when you think about your worldview, it's composed of your personality, your life experiences, um, your reaction to and, and what you learn from those life experiences. It, it yields the unique worldview that each of us have. And so even if you're in a classroom where you're learning the exact same information as everyone else around you, that the processing of that information is going to be refracted off the different facets of who you are and your solutions to problems and the way that you arrive at them are going to be unique. And so, you know, when it comes to dealing with imposter syndrome or the feeling of how am I going to figure this career thing out? This, like, this is, this is so essential to just lean into the unique composition of your worldview because, you know, the world needs you. And, and needs your unique worldview um, to, to solve these, these massive problems that we're facing. I also think that it's okay to draw your roadmap in pencil. Oftentimes in science, we celebrate, you know, roadmaps that are saying, I'm going to go to undergrad, I'm going to get my master's, and I'm going to, you know, get my PhD, which is phenomenal. But, you know, when, when it's in terms of building an unconventional path in science, I, I think it's okay to to say you're going to do one thing and then as you learn and grow and, and, and as your worldview evolves and changes, it's, a, it's okay to change your mind and it's okay to, to erase things and, and redraw the roadmap that you have for yourself. So, so having the confidence to being able to say, this is the roadmap that I think is right today, but as I learn and grow, it's going to evolve and it's going to change and, and that's going to be awesome. I also think that sometimes success looks a lot like unanswered emails, right? Um, I think 
I am the person. That's the one. Yeah, I think, you know, like the person that I am today, you know, who I am is, is intrinsically tied to the advice and the wisdom and the mentorship of, of great scientific minds. And for every person that has agreed to speak to me, one to two say no, or will look at my LinkedIn profile <laughs> request and decline it. You know, the, in those moments, it can be extremely disheartening, right? Because I, you know, you want to talk to someone because you're excited about the work that they're leading. You know, the, the thing to focus on it in those moments is the fact that you were bold and you were thoughtful and you took the time to reach out to someone. And, and those things are a reflection of you and, and that, and that boldness and that thoughtfulness is being, it will be translated into other conversations. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's that boldness and it's that thoughtfulness and that it's that perseverance, which is going to take you to help you find those great conversations and those great mentor relationships and to, and to lead you to those, those moments where someone's going to say something to you and you're just going to be like, Oh my goodness, that was phenomenal. Um, And then the last one is, I think, Mm -hmm filling your circle with people who believe in present you and future you. I'd say Titus is a great example of this for me because he believes in, he's my mentor, but he believes in who I am today, but he also believes in when I bring him crazy ideas or, you know, or I, I you know, I think even my friend group, I bring people, you know, oh, I, I want to do this someday, or, you know, I want to help solve this very large and sort of daunting problem. You have to surround yourself with people who believe in the person that you are today, but also the, the person that you want to become. And don't just acknowledge that, you know, this person that you you want to become and, and the work that you want to contribute to. But they say, you know, I believe in you to the point that I, I want to I want to assist you in any way that I can. Right. That I want to support you in any way that I can. And, and that support takes different takes different paths. Right. It looks differently um, depending on and who the person is. And so. And, it, and, you know, if, if people are doing that for you, then you're going to be able to, to create in a unique way that wouldn't be possible if you didn't have a community of people who believed in you. And hopefully then by extension, you're doing that for other people. Right. And so you just have like this, this really beautiful um, relationship that develops with, with, you know, sort of your inner circle of people who believe in you. Right. And so you all of a sudden have this community where everyone is just running at their goals, right? And, and running at different problems that they want to solve. And it's, it creates something that's quite beautiful instead of, um, you know, sort of that isolating feeling that we can sometimes feel when, when we're trying to craft an unconventional path um, where it's, mm-hmm. oh, I don't, I don't know anyone who's done this before. So I think finding people, mm-hmm. filling your circles and, and filling your, your time with people who believe in, in present you and future you. Um, is essential to success as well.